I'll pray for us and then we'll open up. Heavenly Father, as we look at the story and life of Abraham this morning, we pray that you would help us understand uh, the different parts of, of this story, why it's important that you would give us clarity about the details of this narrative and help us understand it. And we pray most of all that you would shape our hearts and lives by what we read. We don't want this to just be an academic exercise, but we know that your word is living and active and that it shapes us, conforms us into the image of Christ. Um, We pray that it would do that for us this morning, that as we look at Abraham's successes and his shortcomings, uh, that we would be encouraged to live a life of godliness in Christ Jesus. For it's in his name that we ask and pray. Amen. So open to Genesis 11. Um, Story of Abraham sort of begins at the end of Genesis 11, really picks up in Genesis 12, and then covers the rest of the first half of Genesis. About a quarter of Genesis is devoted to, uh, to Abraham. Uh, he'll pass away for us in Genesis 25. So the goal for today is to cover the life of Abraham, or at least almost all of it. Uh, we want to get pretty close uh, to, to covering the entire life of Abraham. Uh, and most of what we're going to be doing is, um, you know, just really going over the details of the story. And, um, you know, a little bit later on, as we continue to go through the Old Testament, um, we're going to have to refer back to the life of Abraham. So we take time in a lot of our class periods to talk about how does this relate to Christ? How do, uh, you know, Christians today relate back to this story? Um, Today's class period, we're going to do less of that because a lot of those conversations we can have later in the semester. But what we really need to know today is the basic events of the life of Abraham, because these are things that I'm going to, you know, be going back to quite a bit. As we get into Exodus, as we get into a book like Isaiah even, uh, we've got to be able to think back to the promises that God made Abraham and to the different events of Abraham's life uh, in order to understand what's happening. So this is like a really good day to lock in. Uh, These are things that you really want to be able to keep fresh on your mind. So in Genesis 11, uh, will somebody read verses 27 through 30? Zach. Yeah, Chaldees or Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The, the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milkai, mm-hmm. Milka, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milka, and the father of Isaac. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. All right, so Abram and his family are from a city called Ur. Um, Ur is the Hebrew word for light. So they're from the city of light. Um, have you ever heard the word enlightened? Yeah. If someone is enlightened, what does that mean? Understanding. Yeah, they have understanding. Like they have 
Okay, yeah, they, they have understanding, they have a new, maybe a new perspective, something like that, right? Um, it has to do with, with intelligence to some degree. And so Ur is called the city of light. It is a city that prides itself uh, on, you know, we're smart, we've got things figured out. Um, Ur is in the land of the Chaldeans. And I've told you before, Chaldeans is the same as what? Babylonians. So this is the story of Abram the, we're going to later call him Abram the Hebrew, but right now we're calling him Abram the Babylonian. All right. The very first father of the Israelite nation was called by God out of Babylon to go to the land of Canaan. That's very important for later in the Old Testament. All right. Yeah, that's very significant, right? Uh, Judah will be exiled out of the land of Canaan back into Babylon, where they were originally called out from. Um, Abram has a wife named what? Sarai. Sarai, Sarai, something like that. Um, And what do you already know about his relationship to Sarai? She's barren. Okay, she's she's barren. What do you know from your reading about their relationship? Um, Terrible. Abram and Sarai are what? They're related. They're half-siblings. They have one of the same parents. So you're Abram, and you're living in the city of light, you know, uh, the city that prides itself on intelligence when really it's walking in darkness, it's worshiping idols. But, but you're in this city called Ur, and cities are usually big or small. Usually they're big, and, and, and you're Abram, and you get to the age where you start, you know, wanting a wife, and you look at all the ladies in this city, and the one that you just cannot live without. Your sister. Your sister. sister. All right. Um, go ahead, Jeremiah. Um, can I go get my Bible, please? I was distracted when the server. Sure. Okay. Um, next up, in verses 31 and 32... Abram's entire family leaves Ur. And they're heading for Canaan, but they stop partway in the land of Haran. And there, in Haran, uh, Abram, his father, Terah, is going to die. And then, pretty soon, he's going to be called to leave the rest of his family in Haran and to make the rest of the travel on to uh, the land of Canaan, the land that God will show him. So picking up in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So let's talk about the promises that Abraham just received. Abram just received. What does God promise him in those first three verses that I just read? Yeah, he promises a great nation. What else? A great name. Yeah, I'll give you a great name. And remember from yesterday, that is, you know, contrasted with Uh, the Tower of Babylon story. They tried to make a great name for themselves, whereas Abram is given a great name. All right, what else does God promise Abram? Uh, A blessing. 
Yeah, he promises to bless Abram, and then, on top of that, um, what does he promise to do through Abram? Not just bless Abram, but, but do what? Bless all the families through him. Yeah, bless all the families of the earth through him, all the nations through him. All right? Uh, families of the earth, that's one way that Genesis, um, that's a term Genesis uses to talk about all those different nations that we looked at in chapter 10 yesterday. So he's going to bless, we'll just say he's going to bless the whole world through Abram. All right? So those are the big, we'll put it, we could list it a few different ways. We're going to list that kind of as the big four promises from Genesis 1 through 3. Um, But then after God speaks to Abram, Abram gets up and he starts walking. He starts his journey and he enters the land of Canaan. And in verse six, it says Abram passed through the land to the place at. And what's the city that's listed there? Abram passed through the land to the place at in verse six. Yeah, it's, it's pronounced Shechem. Shechem, okay? So Abram goes through the land of Canaan. Shechem is basically the halfway point in, in Israel. From north to south, Shechem is roughly halfway. From east to west, Shechem is roughly halfway. So he makes it basically to the middle of Canaan, this important town called Shechem. And there, in verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So, what fifth promise could we put up here? What does God promise Abraham? Uh, and the land is specifically the land of... Yeah. Oh, and by the way, what city is Abram in when he receives that promise? Shechem. That is very important. If you're thinking about like really important cities in the Bible... What are some of the first ones that are going to come to your mind? Really important cities in the Bible. Jerusalem, Jerusalem should be really uh, high on that list. What else? Bethlehem. Bethlehem, because that's where Christ is born. Uh, okay, Egypt as a nation is pretty important. Uh, what other cities might come? Uh, Israel's a nation. What other cities might in Israel might be really important? All right, uh, Nineveh's in Assyria, right? Nineveh's an important one. Uh, just Babylon as a whole is pretty important. Shechem needs to be almost at the top of your list. Shechem, I don't want to overstate this, um, but in the Old Testament, Shechem is probably second only to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is probably the most important city in the Old Testament. Shechem is probably number two. Um, and it's one that we don't talk about a lot about. Do you guys really know anything about Shechem except for what I just put up here on the board? All right. By the time we finish Joshua, you're going to understand, wow, Shechem is super important. And then we're going to get into Judges, and you're going to say, wow, Shechem is super important, and I hate it. All right. Uh, it's not a good place. So um, Abram receives these promises. Uh, and he's made it to Canaan, he's in the land, and God has said, you're going to have a great nation, a great day, I'm going to bless you, I'll bless the whole world through you, and by the way, here you are in the middle of the land in Shechem, 
all of this is going to be yours. So, Abram probably pitches his tent at Shechem and says, I need to prop up my feet and make myself at home. But then, in chapter 12, verse 10, something bad happens. Now, there was a what? Famine in the land. So, what does Abram have to do? Can he stay in Canaan? He can't stay in Canaan. There's no food. So, does it look like this promise is being fulfilled very quickly? No. No. So, Abram has to get up. He has to take his family. And, lo and behold, this famine in the land causes Abram to go where? Egypt. Egypt. Huh. Have you guys started reading a story here recently where a famine causes people to sojourn down into Egypt? Yeah, it sounds a lot like the Joseph story. So Abram gets to Egypt, and then Abram gets scared. Because apparently, Sarai is hot stuff. And he's thinking to himself, the Egyptians are going to see her, and they're going to want to marry her, and they're going to have to get rid of her husband, and I'm going to die. So he looks at Sarai, and he says, I want you to tell everyone that you are my sister. So they go to Egypt, and Sarai and Abram are pretending to be brother and sister, and then the most powerful person in Egypt sees Sarai. The Pharaoh sees Sarai and decides, I'm going to take her as my wife. So the Pharaoh takes her into his house, um, but then a great plague strikes Pharaoh's house in verse 17. Huh. All right. So there's a famine. We have to go to Egypt. But then in Egypt, we're mistreated. So God responds by sending plagues on Egypt. Is that sounding familiar? Yes. Yeah. And then uh, Pharaoh realizes what's happening and he confronts Abram and is like, why did you do this? And Abram said, I was a chicken. And Pharaoh says, okay, here's like a whole bunch of money. Now get out of here. Guess what the Israelites do as they're leaving Egypt? Do you know what happens? They don't steal anything. The, uh, the Egyptians are like, get the heck out of here. And they give them all this gold that they later used to make the tabernacle. So um, this sounds very, very close to these later stories that will happen later in Israel's history. Um, by the way, uh, in verse 16, this is what Abram gets. He gets sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So pretty, pretty, you know, he's racking it up there. All right, so, um, you know, thinking about that story a little bit more deeply, Abram is scared the Egyptians are going to kill him. Can God let that happen? No. 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 Because God has made these promises to Abram. Have they been fulfilled yet? No. No. So, if Abram went to Egypt and God didn't protect him and Abram was killed, what would be true about all of those promises God had made? They were lies. They were lies. They didn't come true. So, God, being faithful, uh, you know, has to protect Abram. Abram has to be safe in Egypt. But does Abram trust God to keep him safe? No. No. Instead, he doesn't trust God, he doesn't believe, and he resorts to cowardice and he resorts to lies. So the first thing Abram does after receiving these massive promises is he falls headlong into sin. 
All right. Well, in chapter 13, uh, the famine has ended and Abram goes back to the land of Canaan. This time around, um, he's really rich and he sojourns back into, uh, into the land of Canaan. But he has some additional family members with him. He has his nephew. And what's his nephew's name? Lot. Lot. And Abram has become very wealthy. He has all of these animals, and animals need space to graze. But Lot has also somehow, the text doesn't really tell us how, but, but Lot has somehow also become very wealthy. And he has a lot of animals, and they need a lot of space to graze. And the shepherds who are under Abram and the shepherds who are under Lot start getting in arguments about the land. So Abram wants to keep the peace. And he goes to Lot in verse, will someone read verses uh, 8 and 9 of chapter 13? Joy Lynn. Yeah, so the, the, the two groups have been having strife and arguments, and Abram basically says, take whatever portion of Canaan you want, I'll take a different portion, and then we'll kind of spread out. And this is a way to keep the peace. This way our, our, our shepherds aren't having to fight over the same land. It's just we're too big, it's better for us to you know, have a little bit of space. So uh, somebody read verses 10 through 12 for us, uh, Peter. Okay, so uh, Abram says, Lot, you take whatever portion of the land you want, and I'll take another portion. And Lot looks, and he takes what he thinks is the best portion of the land. In fact, um, not all of Israel is super fertile. Part of it, it's really hard to garden uh, or, or, or farm. And so Lot takes the part where the, where the land is very fertile, where it's very easy to farm, leaving the more barren part of the land for Abram. But Abram's okay with this. Abram believes God's promise that, okay, one day this entire land will be mine and, and the Lord will help me cultivate, subdue it, right? So the land that Lot chooses uh, is really close to a city that gets mentioned uh, in the text, it's really close to Sodom. And this land is like awesome. It's like the land of Egypt, but it's also like what? Yeah, it's compared to Eden in the text. And so Lot takes it and he settles pretty close to the city called Sodom. But then in verse 13, we read this. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Was it wise for, for Lot to take the land he took? No. no. Uh, because it is very close to this wicked city 
uh, where people are great sinners. Now, tomorrow, we're going to look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in a lot of detail. We'll skip over that part today whenever we get a little bit further. And it's very interesting, whenever you really look at the story, uh, how Sodom and Gomorrah are described. All right. Uh, This is something that we'll have to take quite a lot of time uh, at. And and this is one of those places where I mentioned before, uh, you know, it's really good to be familiar with the Bible. But sometimes you've got to look at things with fresh eyes. That's a story that we all know a lot. But there are some details in it that we've got to pay really close attention to if we're really going to understand it rightly. Um, In chapter 14, though, in the first 16 verses, Abram has settled Uh, in the less fertile part of the land. Lot has settled in the fertile part of the land, very close to Sodom, and something bad happens in chapter 14. You see, the people of Sodom, uh, it describes them as very wicked, right? And the people of Sodom are a city that are under a ruler. And the ruler's name is Chedorlaomer. You can see how that's spelled in verse 1. Cheddar Laomer, last, last year I, I just called him Big Cheese. Uh, so, uh, Cheddar Laomer, though, is a very powerful king. And Sodom decides to rebel against him. And if you read chapter 14 closely, what you figure out is that Sodom, along with four other cities, cities, so five cities total, try to make war on Chedorlay Omer and four other nations. <laughs> or four total nations. It's five cities against four nations. How's that going to go? So, so it talks about the king of Sodom. If you look closely at the text, though, all right, it's five cities, Sodom, Gomorrah, and some others, against four nations. That's not going to go well. Cheddar Laomer is incredibly powerful. So Sodom doesn't like being under his rule. They try to rebel against him with their allies. They fight against Big Cheese, and it doesn't go well at all. And Cheddar Laomer is going to absolutely destroy the armies of these five cities and caught up in all of this destruction and all of this warfare is Lot. Lot is living really close to Sodom, so whenever Cheddar Laomer's army wins and they march against Sodom, Lot winds up being taken prisoner. Guilty by association. He lives close to the city, so he's basically part of the city. So when bad things happen to the city, guess what happens to Lot? Bad things. Okay. Yeah, Abraham uh, with 318 men. Uh, is going to march against Chedorlay Omer and somehow miraculously wins the victory. And he's able to rescue Lot. So, uh, after Abram absolutely destroys Chedorlay Omer and all of his armies, uh, he, he has rescued Lot, he's rescued all of the people and possessions of Sodom, and he starts marching back towards Sodom to, to bring all these people home. And as he's getting close to Sodom, he has to pass by another city. And the city that he has to pass by is called Salem. 
Now, um, I'm going to give you a hint. Anybody know what Salem, what Salem goes by a different name in scripture? Anybody know what the other name of the city is? Winston? Memorial? No. Where is it Winston? What if I tell you that the way that you say city, it, the way that you say city in Hebrew is Jeru? Jeru. Salem. Salem is the Hebrew word for peace. So, this is the city of peace. You know that? So, as Abraham, Abram still, is delivering all of these people and taking them back to Sodom, he has to pass by Salem, and this odd figure comes out to meet him. There's a person that lives in the city of peace, whose name is Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, his name literally means king of righteousness. And Melchizedek is not only a king of Salem, but it also says that he's a priest to God Most High. He's a godly person. He's a priest to the Lord. Okay. If he's living in Jerusalem at this point in history, what ethnicity is Melchizedek? Basically this question, is he a descendant of Abraham? No. So is he an Israelite? Is he a Jew? No, Levites come from Abraham. They're descendants of Abraham. And Abram, has, Abraham, has Abram had any kids so far in the story? No. no. What do you call people who live in Canaan? Canaanites. So Melchizedek, guess what's true about Melchizedek? He's a Canaanite, but somehow this guy is in right relationship with the one true God that Abram worships. In fact... Uh, Melchizedek will call a uh, will call God by this title, God Most High, and then right after that in this story, Abram will repeat that phrase as if he learned it from Melchizedek. Somehow, Abram learns truths about God that he didn't previously know from Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a Canaanite, but he's a godly Canaanite. He's a king of the city of peace. He's a king who is defined by righteousness, and he's a priest. Uh, before God. And Melchizedek comes out and greets Abram and greets Abram's army and serves them two things, bread and wine. What does that sound like? Yeah, it sounds like the Lord's Supper, doesn't it? And then Melchizedek blesses Abram. Uh, By the way, what was one of the promises that God had made to Abram? Bless those who bless you. Yeah, he promised Abram, I will bless you. And at this point in the story, God's priest, Melchizedek, pronounces a blessing on Abram. He says, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram then responded by giving Melchizedek a tenth of everything that he owned. Uh, 
Do you know what it's called whenever you give a tenth to somebody? It's a tithe. So Abram pays tithes to Melchizedek, which symbolizes Abram thinks Melchizedek is a godly guy. And it also symbolizes tithing and taxing in the ancient world are very, very closely linked together. It shows that Abram sees Melchizedek as an authority over him. He sees Melchizedek as his superior. So does Melchizedek seem like a pretty important guy? Yeah, and the Bible's not going to talk about him again until we get to Psalm 110. And then it's not going to talk about him again until you get to Hebrews chapter 7. And then it'll never talk about him again. Hebrews? Yeah. This guy lives through the old... Well, no, he's dead by that point, right? But but it's it's not going to hardly say anything about Melchizedek, but still, a very important figure. So later in the semester, we're going to have to reflect on Melchizedek a lot. So, after being blessed by Melchizedek, Abram meets the king of Sodom, and he returns all of the goods to him. And the king of Sodom says, you should keep these. And Abram says, no. And the reason why is the king of Sodom is not a God-fearing person. He's not a godly person. But Abram knows that the Lord has made promises to bless him, and he doesn't want the king of Sodom to say, well, Abram says that his God blessed him, but really I did. So he won't take anything from the king of Sodom. He gives everything back to him freely. After returning all of these things to the king of Sodom, and after letting the inhabitants of Sodom go back to their home, Abram will depart. But one very important detail. If you were Lot, what would you now do? You you would leave, right? Was Lot actually living in Sodom before? No. no, he was living near Sodom. Uh, if you or I are in his position, hopefully we hightail it out of there. But after Abram returns all of these people back to their home, Lot is going to pick up his stuff and he's going to move. But he's not going to move away from Sodom. He's going to move into Sodom, inside the city. Is that a wise decision? No. No, it was, it's a goofy goober move, right? All right. Uh, In chapter 15, um, Abram, again, is expressing a little bit of frustration and a little bit of doubt. He received that blessing from Melchizedek. That's true. But do the rest of these promises seem like they have happened yet? No, none of them. So in chapter 15, Abram issues a a little bit, we we could maybe call it a respectful complaint to the Lord, right? I don't take this as him grumbling and complaining against God, but Abram does very honestly uh, ask God this question. He says in verse 2 of chapter 15, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Does he have a kid yet? No. 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 So God kind of amplifies the promise that he had made to Abram before. In verse 5, he says, um, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then God said, so shall your offspring be. All right. So is it going to be just like a couple kids? Abram's going to be an enormously great nation. And in verse 6, Abram responds with faith. It says, 
and he believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. So Abram believes the promise. But then God gives Abram a sign, a vision, that this is going to come true. He says to Abram, go get some animals, and I want you to kill them, and then I want you to cut them in half. And what Abram winds up doing is, if you kind of think about it with these two rows of desks right here, he puts one part of the animal here and the other half here, and one part there and one part there, and he makes this aisle. And then, after he's done that, God puts him into a deep sleep. And in this deep sleep, Abram has a vision where he sees these carcasses of these animals that have been cut in half, and God speaks to him, and God reiterates all of the promises. He repeats all of the promises that he had made to Abram about giving him the land and making him a great nation. He repeats all of these promises, and then Abram in his vision, in verse 17, it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And once again, God repeats the promises. Now, that's a weird vision, isn't it? Here's a bunch of animals that are cut in half and laid opposite each other, and then a smoking fire and a flaming torch pass through the middle of them, and then God repeats his promises. Well, what's uh, happening yes, there? Revelations. No. Um, what are the two things that pass between the, uh, the animals in the vision? A pot and a flaming torch. Yeah. Let's talk about this for a minute because it's very, very important. All right, there's one that is a, what does it call it exactly? Uh, a smoking fire pot. So it's a, maybe you guys have seen something like this before. Um, you kind of make the fire start in the bottom of the pot so that it won't spread out. And then you would use that to heat something else, usually in your home. Like you don't want just like an open fire going in your home. So you start the fire in the pot and then you can put something over it and it'll cook it. But, you know, we use ovens, right? Abram doesn't have ovens. This is what he would have used. So do you actually probably see the fire? No, no the fire is kind of down in the pot. So what do you see coming up out of the pot? smoke and then there's on the the other thing is a flaming torch do you actually probably see the fire of the torch yes yeah you see the fire of the torch right you guys know what a torch is um so um there's a a smoky thing and a fiery thing that passed between these does God ever show up as smoke and fire other places? Yeah, yeah. Bush. Burning, bush. Burning, bush. Burning bush. What did you say? Out of exile, uh, the pillar. Yeah, pillar of fire and pillar of cloud. Cloud and smoke or what? Very similar. Very, very similar. So we need to remember this imagery for later on. This is very important. It shows up multiple times um, you know one of the reasons why it's a pillar of cloud and pillar of fire is because God wants the Israelites to know uh, the God that rescued out of you out of Egypt is the same God that appeared to Abram um, but what about these whole like you know split carcass things well in the ancient world 
Um, there, there's an important vocabulary word that we're going to be getting into soon called a covenant. All right? A covenant is, um, this is the illustration I use sometimes. It's not perfect, but it works for now. All right? There's a difference between a promise and a covenant. And for now, this is good enough for you to understand what we're talking about. A promise has no, uh, uh, no punishments attached. All right, so if I looked at Wyatt and I said, Wyatt, this isn't true, by the way. This is just an example. But I said, Wyatt, if you make a 100 on your test on Monday, I'll give you $1,000. All right, if I said that to Wyatt, all right, and let's say Wyatt studies hard and Wyatt makes a 100, all right, and then he says, Mr. Gravy, give me the $1,000, and I look at him and I say, no. Can Wyatt sue me? Yes. No, he can't. I gave him a verbal agreement, right? But that's all. I can look at him and say, oh, it's just kidding. Or just, no, I'm not going to do it. I can break my promise, and there is no punishment attached. But if I say, Wyatt, you make a 100 on your test on Monday, and I'll give you $1,000, and then we put it on paper, and we get it notarized, and we sign off on it, and then he makes a 100, and I don't pay up, he can, have, he can take that document, he can give it to somebody, he can demand that I give him the money, and if not, I'm going to be in a whole bunch of trouble. All right? There is a lot more that we're going to say about promises and covenants, but kind of think about it that way. A promise is, is something that can be broken without any sort of a repercussion. But whenever it becomes a covenant, there is something legal attached to it. There are consequences attached to it. And in the ancient world, what would happen a lot of times is one nation would be in an alliance ship with a weaker nation. And the, the more powerful nation would say, I will offer you protection if you are completely loyal to me, you pay tithes, yada, yada, yada. And at the end of all of these promises being made, the weaker of the two kings would go through a ceremony exactly like the one in Genesis 15. The weaker of the two kings would pass through split carcasses and then would say, if I fail to pay taxes to you, if I fail to be allegiant to you, then what happened to those carcasses ought to happen to me. What's interesting about that is in the ancient world, it's always the weaker king that passes through them and swears something to the more powerful king. Who passes through them in this story? God. Is God the weaker or more powerful out of him and Abraham? Way more powerful. But God passes through these carcasses, and what God is saying in this moment is, Abram, I have made all of these promises to you, and if I don't fulfill them, then may I become like those dead beasts behind me. Is God serious? Yeah. Mm-hmm. By the way, how does God wind up fulfilling all of his promises to his people? Through the cross. Where Jesus, is Jesus fully God and fully man? Yes. 100% God, 100% man? Yes. Yeah. And does he die on the cross? Yes. Yeah. And it shows that God wasn't joking around in this text, was he? He takes his promises very seriously. And... Seriously enough, uh, the, the, 
that if push comes to shove, he will become like these, you know, dead carcasses in order to fulfill the word that he has said to us, the promises he has said to us. Christ died, right? And it's really hard for a Christian to read Genesis 15 in this text and not see that as a picture of how Christ would ultimately die on the cross for our sake and our salvation, isn't it? So, um, God is really taking these promises seriously. He repeats all of these promises to Abram here in this text. And if you're Abram and you see how, how serious God is being uh, based on all of this, you would simply believe him, right? You hope? Well, poor Abram, who is the father of faith. This is what we talk about Abraham being. You know, Abram is this great figure of faith, right? Um, And he is. But in chapter 16, uh, Abram messes up again. God has made these massive promises to him, but then several years pass and there's still no kid. And Abram is starting to get frustrated. You know, by the time that this text takes place, he is 86 years old. Sarai is 85. Do 86 and 85-year-olds usually have kids? No. No. And so there's frustration, there's unbelief. God keeps making these promises and repeating them, but they're not happening. And so Abram and Sarai talk one day. And Sarai says, well, maybe God needs our help in all of this. Is that a good thought, by the way? No. Okay. Uh, God need your help, Zach? He says, nope. All right. Well, maybe God needs our help. And so uh, Sarai takes her servant, Hagar, and gives it, gives her, although they kind of talk about Hagar as if she's an it, right? Uh, Sarai takes Hagar and gives her to her husband. And what does that sound a lot like? A wife takes and gives to her husband. What does that sound like? Sounds like Eve, what she did with this forbidden fruit. Hagar is kind of a forbidden fruit. Should Abram have any relations with her? She's off limits. But the woman tempts and takes and gives to the man. And Abram, just like Adam, is passive and complicit, and he sleeps with Hagar. He has an affair with Hagar. And Hagar gets pregnant. And Hagar starts to maybe look down on Sarai a little bit. Hagar is Sarai's servant, but now that she's pregnant and she's giving Abram a kid and Sarai hasn't, uh, Hagar starts to look down on Sarai a little bit. And then Sarai starts oppressing Hagar and being mean to her and being rough with her. And it gets to the point where Hagar, this servant lady, feels that she has to run away. Um, By the way, did anyone pick up on where Hagar was from? Egypt. So this is kind of a reversal of the Exodus story. In the, in the Exodus story, uh, the Egyptians enslave 
the Israelites and oppress them, and then eventually the Israelites run off to the wilderness. But in this story, the Israelites are oppressing the Egyptian, and she runs away to a wilderness. But in the wilderness, God appears to her and speaks to her and comforts Hagar and tells her, you need to go back and you need to bear this son. You need to be a part of Abram's household. Hagar obeys. She returns to Abram and Sarai, and she has a son, half Abrahamic and half Egyptian, and his name is Ishmael. All right? Ishmael. Uh, Ishmael is, uh, it literally means God hears. Uh, Hagar names Ishmael by this name uh, because God heard her cries in the wilderness. So, um, so far, again, have we seen God fulfill many of these promises? No. Is Ishmael going to be considered a legitimate son? No, he's not, right? Um, the promises of, of that God has given to Abram will eventually be passed down to Abram's descendants, not to Ishmael, though. It'll be passed down through his other son, who we'll get to in just a minute. Uh, chapter 17, 13 years passes. Ishmael's 13 now. Abram is 99 years old. Any son yet? No. Not apart from Ishmael. How, do you, how would you feel? This has been going on for decades now. You first heard God's promises decades ago. How old are you guys? 14. All right. So basically, um, between, roughly, between Ishmael being born and where we're at in the story now has been your entire lifetime. And Abram got the promises way before that. So you think about that. Uh, you know, if, uh, if I made you a promise a week ago and I hadn't fulfilled it yet, you would be frustrated with me. And this has been decades. It's been longer than your entire life. But the Lord appears to Abram again in chapter 17. And he says, Abram, I'm going to give you a sign that all of my promises are true. And the sign that he gives to Abram is the sign of circumcision. Do you guys know what circumcision is? Yes. Okay. Everybody always says that, and there are always kids who don't. So, rather than you going home and feeling like you need to Google it, which is a bad idea, don't do it. All right? Um, I'm going to explain what it is. All right? Uh, This is one of the places where we have to be mature. Right? So this is not a place for giggling. Circumcision uh, is usually done to babies. Israelite babies will be circumcised on the eighth day. And uh, it's only for boys. It has to do with the penis. All right? You don't chop the entire thing off. I had someone very confused about that a couple years ago who thought that's what happened. That's not what happens. Right? That that is definitely not what happens. Um, There's a little bit of extra skin towards the tip. Uh, and in circumcision, that gets cut away. It's an incredibly painful process if you do it as an adult, 
Uh, usually it is done to babies whenever they will not remember it. Whenever my boys were in, uh, one of my sons was in the NICU for, uh, I think he was in there nine days. Um, but while we were in the NICU with him, uh, we saw the doctor pick up a little baby and then carry them into a room where there were curtains closed. And then we heard this god-awful screaming for, you know, like the next hour <laughs> as this baby was being circumcised. I don't think you want to do, my understanding would be you don't want to do anesthesia on a baby. Yeah, I'm sure there's like some sort of numbing, but like my kids scream and cry if you just hold them down to change their diaper. If I were to change them, to hold them down to change their diaper and cut them with a knife, uh, you know. Oh, and by the way, um, we have like tools that are super good for that now. In these days, do you remember what Abram used for this? A flit knife. Oh, that's not, that's not, that's not it. Okay, so, um, God appears to Abram, and my opinion, Abram has great faith in this moment, (laughs) incredible faith in this moment. Um, He appears to Abram, and he says, Abram, uh, these promises still haven't happened, and Abram goes, trust me, I know. And God says, well, I'm going to give you a sign of the promises, that you will be a great nation, and it's the sign of circumcision. I want you and your entire household to be circumcised. All right? So, um, uh, Abram goes through with this. Uh, the sign of circumcision deals with the bits of the body responsible for reproduction. And so it is a picture of, number one, Abram, uh, his seed will grow into a great nation. But number two, it's also a promise that through this line, through Abraham's line, will come the one who was promised in the beginning and will crush the serpent's head. Um, Circumcision is for men only. It is bloody and it is painful. And the scriptures use uh, a figure of speech to talk about circumcision. After someone is circumcised, if, if they're an adult especially, you can imagine they're out of commission for a few days. And the language that's actually used whenever they recover from it, our text, uh, as we read through the scripture, it will say after they recovered, yada, yada, yada. In Hebrew, the phrase is when they came back to life. It's almost like they're dead for a couple days. And I'll just slide this in casually. The period for recovery for circumcision is typically at least three days. So it's kind of like you're dead for three days then you come back to life again after you go through this bloody, painful, messy process. Hmm. Interesting. Let's file that one away. All right. Um, Circumcision in verse chapter 17, verse seven. God says, I will establish my covenant uh, between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God promises to be God not only to Abraham, but also to the children that come after Abraham as well. And so uh, Abram and his household are circumcised. They go through this rite. This is also a way that they are set apart from the rest of the nations as God's chosen people. Uh, It's a sign of their uniqueness, their status as God's people. 
Um, and in this as well, Abram is renamed to what? Abram to Abraham. Uh, Abram was a cult name from Babylon, which um, really could be like great father. Um, the We'll talk about this more. The religions of the ancient world are usually fertility cults. Uh, usually they're very centered on sex and having a bunch of kids. And so the name Abram... Um, means something like great father. Um, you know, the gods of Ur will bless you. They'll give you a lot of descendants and a lot of children. God changes his name to um, uh, Abram. Abraham means something like father of nations. Um, so it's not that you'll just be a great father. You'll be a father of nations. But there's also an argument here. Uh, could the gods of Babylon give him any kids? No. But the god that he has met now can do he, the God that he's met now can do what the other gods promised to do. The other gods promised and couldn't deliver, and the God that Abram is walking with now uh, will, will will do what they said that they would do. Zach, you have a question? What's a name? A what? You said you were in the NICU or something. NICU. Uh, that's a part of the hospital reserved for babies who need a little bit more time to uh, to develop fully. Uh, sometimes that happens, like, you know, kind of the incubator thing. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Sometimes that has to happen. Uh, not every baby has to do that if they're in the NICU. Yeah, it's the ICU for newborns. Um, so your reading tonight is Genesis 45 through 48. Tomorrow we will finish the life of Abram. Abraham now, his name's changed. Uh, and we will get into uh, this story of Sodom and Gomorrah in quite a lot of detail. Um, all right.